Welcome to, go ahead, Jesse. I didn't see you there. Go ahead. Welcome to the Terry and Jesse show, TJ, (laughs) Holy Jesus, Truth and Justice, High Energy Catholic Radio. We got an exciting show here. We're going to have a church historian, the next segment, uh, two, three, and four. And you know, Terry, I'm going to ask him, Charles Colomb, I'm going to ask him a narrow focus. Good. I I think you and me could have an intelligent conversation with him. I want to ask him. What went wrong with Vatican II? I've, I've got other people's take on it. Sure. Uh, but I want to see what he says because, again, he's a uh, he's got all the right credentials for this. I mean, he's a church historian. And I also want to ask him, uh, Was did the Masons have something to do? Can I tell you? I say it because there's a lot of people that have written about this in more recent times. Father Charles Murr. Yeah. Taylor Marshall. Sure. The Alta Vendita. Yes, I mean so. There's there's a lot of documentation. That's uh, that that other book, AA Anti Apostle Ten Twenty One. Right, we got it. Yeah, there's a lot of, and so I want to see what Charles has to say because once again, he's a he's a right person to ask these questions. And he's also going to tell us something that uh, is very interesting. He's never done this about his father, and that the influence his father had on his life. So it's going to be a very interesting. He also wrote a book. Uh, uh, called The uh, Vigors of Christ, A History of the Popes. And by order of St. John Paul II, he was created a knight commander of the order of St. Sylvester. Much, this is a man, just that uh, has some credentials. And But you know what I like about him? I go back 40 years with him when he was a teenager. Hmm. And he's just an ordinary guy who loves Christ and the church. And he's very articulate. And a matter of fact, Jesse, he's a funny guy. Because you know what yeah, he did in Hollywood yeah. at one time? Stand-up comic. No way. Yeah, he he is a funny guy. Well, well I could see that. Yeah, his parents were in acting, and we'll get to it, but there's so much more. People are not going to want to miss this segment with him. Just before we get into all of the other good things, let's get the best, the gospel, which is our you know, soul food for today's gospel of the Mass. Yeah, you got it, Terry. You know, on the first reading and 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 today's psalm, yeah, I'm just going to summarize it. Mm-hmm. The prophet Isaiah is criticizing people, the Jewish people, that they keep all they keep all the legal prescriptions of the law, but they don't have God in their heart. Exactly. And 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 the same thing with Psalm 50. It's the same thing. Uh, the psalmist is rebuking the Israelites for keeping the details, the prescriptions of the law without having God in their heart, without having love in their heart. So again, that's something that all of us have to, we can check all the boxes of being an Orthodox Catholic. Yeah. But at the end of the day, as St. John of the Cross said, he said, in the twilight years of our life, we will judge by how much we loved. Amen. So I just, I want to just keep that in mind. I, I have to remind myself. Absolutely. Especially. So, Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 10 and following. Jesus said to his disciples, Do not think I have come to bring peace upon the earth. I have come to bring not peace but the sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's enemies will be those of his household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. 
And whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones to drink because he's a disciple, amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. When Jesus finished giving these commands to his 12 disciples, he went away from that place to teach and to preach in their towns the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. There's about three or four points that jump out at me. The first paragraph, <clears throat> you know, I get a lot of emails, you know, Jess, my daughter, my son, they're out of the church. Mm-hmm. They want nothing to do with God. They hate the, the faith. They this, that and the other. You know, the parents have had a recent conversion at some type of retreat. The parents are not taking their faith serious, but their sons and, and daughters are very detached. Well, Jesus told us that this is going to happen in in the first paragraph. Mm-hmm. Do not think I've come to bring peace upon the earth. I've come to bring not peace, but the sword. In other words, when people in the family accept Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ in the fullness of truth, that's going to divide the family. Yep. That's going to divide the family right there because not everybody's going to be on board. Some people in the family are going to be more worldlings or secular humanists. And so don't, don't be surprised that this is happening. Jesus Christ told us it was going to happen. Now, another thing that jumps out at me, our Lord says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That goes completely against the Protestant gospel, especially the modern Protestant gospel with the health and wealth gospels of the TBN channel. Mm-hmm. That verse right there could, is, is a verse that would not ever be quoted on the TBN channel because, again, they don't have, they don't have an understanding of uniting our sufferings with Christ and redemptive suffering. Another thing that jumps out at me is, our Lord says, whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, if you, if you just become a worldling and you find your life in this world, you're going to lose it. What does that mean? You're going to suffer damnation. Then Jesus Christ says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, whoever rejects the things of the world to become a worldling and embraces divine life, guess what? You're going to find, you're going to find eternal life. Then our Lord says, again, talking about his, his, uh, his, uh, his favorites. If people don't think that Jesus has favorites, absolutely. He says, and whoever gives only a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, little ones, it could be poor or it could be children and babies. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that's what little ones means in Old and New Testament. Whoever gives a cup of cold water to these little ones to drink because he's a disciple, amen, I say to you, he will surely not lose his reward. So imagine, Terry, all the good people that have been uh, working at pregnancy counseling centers for 40 or 50 years, just, you know, uh, just unassuming, behind the shadows, day in and day out, doing the right thing for these little ones. Can you imagine, Terry, the reward on the other side? John, can I, I'm John, Jesse, I have a very good friend, World War II veteran, John Hanrahan, who spent 35 years on the abortion clinic praying his rosary. He died four years ago, and I'm thinking of him in particular. Very humble man, just went out there four days a week, five days a week, and he just would pray. And when he got old, Jesse, he used to walk, he would just sit in the chair and pray. And he did that up until his death. I just think, to me, he's the guy you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yep, Jess, that's using beautiful in the scriptures. Hey, let's bring the smartest guy into the room right now. (laughs) Full sheen ahead. I think of this quote, Carl Keating put it in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. And it's a famous quote everybody should know. Bishop Sheen says, There are not more than 100 people in the world who truly hate the Catholic Church. 
but there are millions who hate what they perceive to be the Catholic Church. I know Jess and myself have met lots of people who attack the Catholic Church, but when you sit down and explain what we actually teach, it's not what they think we teach. I mean, Jess, I know I've seen you in action. I've seen you at men's conferences. I'll give you an example, Jess. See if you can remember, up in Northern California, the uh, father uh, said, hey, can you talk to my son? It was at a men's conference. <laughs> and you opened up your Bible. You sat in a chair. We had to go somewhere, but Jess spent about an hour and a half with this young man explaining to him and answering questions because he was brought away from the church into a fundamentalist church. And when Jesse explained all these verses to him, I saw his mouth drop like, what? We do? And you see, Jess, there's an example of what Fulton Sheen is talking about. So many people perceive what the Catholic Church teaches. is It's erroneous. That's why I think high-information Catholics, we need to evangelize those people, and we're not doing a good enough job, in my opinion. Yeah, we have to also evangelize Terry even even within our churches. Well, Fulton Sheen. How said, can they do it without knowing the faith? Yeah, Fulton Sheen said, "Teach your priests how to be priests, and teach your bishops how to be." Bishops. He sure did. Yes, he said because uh, the lay people were going to save the church. <clears throat> yep. Hey, I want to talk about uh, me. the le- the uh, leftists offer a bounty for sightings of justices. I did saw you know, that. Did yeah. you know that the left wing activist group shut down D.C. They tweeted on Friday that they would put a fifty dollar bounty on anyone who would notify them of a confirmed sighting of any of the pro-life justices of the Supreme Court. These people should be arrested immediately, Terry. Yep, I agree. Also, there's a new Harvard-Harris poll released last Tuesday that 72% of Americans would support banning abortions after 15 weeks. And almost half, 49%, would support banning at six weeks. So the new data is representing a dramatic shift in public opinion since as recently... As May before the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade, so the country's moving more towards pro-life. Uh, did you hear about this disgusting Australian anti-Catholic reporter, Lena Murphy? She uh, over the weekend she posed with an extremely offensive pro-abortion sign and posted a picture of herself smiling with it on social media. And her post said, "Quote: Mary the Virgin should have had an abortion." Nice. It's good to see that Channel Nine, her employer. They put out kind of a half-hearted apology, and they they claim that they've sent Lena Murphy. They've taken her off uh, off of television, and they've sent her for counseling for a while. <laughs> also, did you know about multiple counties in uh, in Texas on Tuesday declared the border crisis an invasion? So the news comes as border crossings continually hit historic highs. Officials clocked two hundred thirty nine two hundred thirty nine thousand migrant encounters in May alone. Kinney County Attorney Brett Smith told Fox News that he believes approximately 12 to 15 counties could end up in Texas declaring an invasion by the end of the month. Is this microphone on, Jesse? I mean, what you just said, give me a break. Hey, Charles Cologne will be with us sometime in the next segment. But before we do that, we're going to have some more news for you. Stay with us here on the Terry and Jesse show on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. We're back to Terry and Jesse Show. We're waiting for Church's story in Charles Cologne, but Terry, you've got some more other news that you want to share? Yeah, we do, Jess, and I just want to mention this because I hear... 
like we're we're putting out a fundraising letter for our slow month, slow time in the summer, and with Bishop Snyder and Bishop um, Joseph Strickland being part of Virgin Most Powerful on a regular basis, we really want to look to our bishops for leadership. And we see something now that Archbishop Laurie, president of the pro-life side of the Bishops' Conference, he's saying that the Biden's administration on abortion is disturbing and tragic, and this executive order. Well, you know, Jess, I, I, I'm glad he's saying it now, but why is it, and I'm just asking the question, Jess, why isn't that our bishops and the conference of bishops coming out when we have an election and just pointing out that it's clear that as a Catholic, we cannot support someone who's for killing unborn babies. And everybody stayed silent. Uh, and I just say to our church leaders, I'm sorry, guys, it's a little late now to say that this is bad. I'm Precisely. glad you're doing it. But come on. Where were you when the election was taking place? Where were you when, as a shepherd, you're guiding the flock? I'm sorry, Jess. I'm disappointed. Terry, you know what? I think Protestants, even pa- Protestant pastors, uh, do do a better job of trying to get the vote out. I, I agree. Mean, I, I watch Protestant conventions sometime on, on television yeah. where... They're not afraid, Terry. They'll they'll mingle oh, yeah. their understanding of Christianity yep. with politics, and they'll say, you know, you can't vote for this the, the Democrat pro-abortion ticket. Uh, and it seems, you know, you can see Mike Lindell and Franklin Graham. These guys do conferences, Terry. Yeah, they're like they're like half of the conference is is religious, mm-hmm. you know, because they're quoting scripture. And then half of the conference is teaching people how to vote and teaching them how to think and making them, you know, exactly. having them try to build a culture of life. There's a problem, Terry. If the bishops would have started that, I mean, like in the 60s, if the bishops would have said, we're going to have a conference with lay people and bishops, and we're going to look at who the pro-life ticket is in this next election, and we're going to rally Catholics around the country, put us on television, put it on EWTN. But Terry... The Protestants do a good job of this. We don't. Well, Jesse, well said. And I'll just, I just got a tweet from Bishop Strickland. He just said, a sad, a, just what you said, Jess, he said, a sad commentary on the church and the state in our time. We need to wake up and stand for the truth. Jesus Christ is the face of truth. I like that line. Jesus Christ is the face. Now, here's where he's going to get in trouble because he's telling the truth. And many bishops aren't willing to do what he's going to say. He says, and again, this I say, Viva lo Cristo Rey, which is long live Christ the King in Spanish. And then he says, Pope Francis, Nancy Pelosi, and the tyrannical culture of death. Okay, now Jess, uh, that's not uh, being a company man. But you know what it is? He's a bishop who said to me last week, I'm a successor of the apostle. I have a duty to be a shepherd and to care for souls. And I need to tell souls the truth, even if it means... Uh, you know, bad things that are going to happen to me. And I respect him more than most bishops in the church because every week I interview him, he tells things, he he tells it like it is. He doesn't worry about, oh, what's someone going to say if I say this? And I think we need more bishops like him. I wish I could pick more guys like him and like Bishop Snyder. Well, Terry, I'm sure glad, I'll be honest with you, I think it's your interviewing style. Mm -hmm. You probably bought, you brought the best out in him because I think, I think it was always there. But it takes somebody like you, yeah. who he can trust. You know, because he trusts me, I get that. Yeah, he told, no, because he told me one day, I forget where I saw him. He just he told me I trust Terry Barber. Yeah. 
He's not going to open up like that with anybody, Terry, yeah. but because you've established a relationship with him, yeah. he talks to you like you guys are talking at Denny's across the table, but exactly. he doesn't realize that tens of thousands of people are listening to him and it's being played on LifeSite News, Church Militant. Yep. But but you you br- all I could say is Terry, I'm going to give you some credit for it ah. because you bring the best out in him because you know what he sees? He sees another lay f- a faithful lay Catholic that's been in this fight for decades and he sees, you know what? You're throwing your full weight of support behind his bishopric. Well, he said it this way. He said uh, ter- he said uh, right on the air, he said, "Terry, I got to tell you, it's you and I and others who are going to stand for the truth, and we're going to be martyred for that, and we're willing to do that, right? And I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And this is the attitude. He says this, Jesse, we have to become first century Christians again. Yes. And what he means by that is what did first century Christians do? Were they politically quick, uh, uh, um, quiet about anything in Rome? No. They shared their faith even if it meant laying their life on the line. That's what he means by that, Jess. You're right, Terry. Um, you, I mean, I, I, I can't. Just how it is. I, I can't even comment on what you just said. That's we are going back to first century Christianity, Terry. You know, Bishop Strickland talk about you know being a truth teller. Yeah. And he mentioned Pope Francis. One of the things I think that the reason the church is suffering so bad. I'm going to ask Charles Colomb this. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the theology of the Ten Commandments is. The worst commandment to break out of all ten is the first one. Yeah, that's right. Because it's a direct offense against God. So if, if people are debating, okay, which is the worst one? Number one, the church's moral theology says to break the first commandment is the worst of them all because it's a direct offense against God. Well, so well, Terry, well, Terry, that was broken by the Pope in public. Yep. Scandalous. The world saw it. Yep. And... You know, I was hoping and praying that, okay, he's going to come to a census after the Pachamama worship at St. Yeah, Peter's. Me too. I'm pr- yeah, I said, okay, he's going to come to a census. He's going to make a statement, apologize, you know, probably do prayers of consecration to the yard. No, Terry, he doubled down. He doubled down. And it, it was none other than, it was Cardinal Raymond Burke. Yep. Again, he's, this, this is no, you know, no small potato, shallow thinker. He said... That when that action took place, he said uh, the, the Pope opened the church to the diabolical. Wow, that's a powerful statement. And you know, Jesse, Bishop Snyder also said that. He also said that there needs to be reparation made for these sacrileges that are going on in the church. And I think that's consistent with Our Lady of Fatima when she said souls are going to hell because no one is there to pray and make sacrifices. So I always say to people, don't get mad. In, in, in get your Catholic faith, use it, and we need to make our prayers. That's why every Thursday night we pray for all the popes, the bishops. We pray for a priest because that was Holy Thursday when they got the institution of the Holy Eucharist. And so what can we do as lay people? We can pray and make reparation. And Bishop Schneider continues to say there needs to be reparation done from Rome. And he's actually asking, asking wow. the Holy Father Wow. To make reparation and say that what happened in Rome with Pelosi was a sacrilege. Not only Pachamama, but there's many sacrileges happening all over the world that it needs to be balanced with reparation. And our leaders need to acknowledge it and, and also stop this kind of stuff because it's opening us up to the demonic. That's what he's saying. Yeah, Terry, the bishops could talk about Eucharistic coherence and write all the documents on the Holy Eucharist that they want. Yeah. But when they see... The Vicar of Christ That's or right. the Cardinal of Washington yeah. 
giving Holy Communion to Joe Biden. Ugh. And they all know his voting record. Right. And they all know his executive orders are, are, are anti-life. And when they see people giving Holy Communion to, to Nancy Pelosi over in Rome, that it, in other words, you, ch- you just can't teach the right thing. You have to do the right thing. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy is the way to evangelize people. People are going to start believing in the real presence of Christ when they say, okay, these guys really believe. They get on on their knees. They lean their head back. They stick their tongue out like a baby. You know, they say amen. Only the priest is behind the altar, the altar rail. When people start seeing, tell you, that's why before the council, 75%, 75%, three out of four Americans were going to Mass on Sunday before 1965. Three out of four Americans, you know why? Because it was very easy before there was clown masses or guitar masses or hippie masses or skateboard masses or, you know, before there was any of that, Terry, what you had, you had a solemn, reverent liturgy that looked like the Jewish worship in the, in the, in, in the, in the temple of Jerusalem. And, and, and again, there's men been many writers like Cardinal Seurat and others. They've, they've written about sacred silence, how important that is to the soul, Terry. Yep. Jesse, you, what you just said, I can tell you, I've met a number of converts who said, you know why I wanted to become a Catholic? I would go to Mass, and I would see people, what, what Jesse just described, reverently receiving Holy Communion on their knees, on their tongue like a baby, like Bishop Snyder says in his book. And then he would, then this woman, many people said, well, then I see you in adoration before the blessed sacrament. I want what you have. You see, they're not going to want this idea that the liturgy is just a birthday party. Are you, I mean, I've read this and, oh yeah, it's like Jesus's birthday party every time we go to mass. What in the world did you get that from? The point I'm making, Jess, people want the sacredness because they need that, it's, 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 it's a beautiful liturgy attracts people to want to worship God. A liturgy that is mundane and ordinary is like going to the park for you know a, a concert. It's okay, but it doesn't do anything to my supernatural life. Yeah, Terry. I, I even uh, I think it was uh, I think it was Monsignor Charles Pope last week. Yep. Uh, he wrote an article on on how to get people back to mass. And and in, in a, he gave he gave ten points on how to bring people back to holy mass. It's right in my hand here. Yeah, you know what he else he actually said, Terry. Tell me, strong reverent liturgy. You think? Of course. That's what's going to get people back to mass. Strong reverent liturgies, and then he goes through like a lot of the nuances. Take out the EMs. You know, no communion in the hand. Put all to rail. So he gets into some of the specifics at Orientum. Uh, there's, I mean, Terry, oh, yeah. it's, it's Kneeling not rocket on the science. Tongue. Yeah. And you know, Jesse, I talked to Bishop Strickland last week. I asked him this question. Tell me, Bishop, how's your attendance at mass after the so-called pandemic? And he says, well, actually we're way up from before the pandemic. I mean, yeah, he says we, uh, like at my cathedral, we got 200 new families that moved in, uh, at the cathedral and we, we have to have more masses. The diocese has more masses now. Than before the pandemic, yes. Does that say, now that should be, I didn't say this to him, but that's his leadership in the diocese. He he didn't, you know, compromise and see people are looking for that. And so when he has reverent masses, his numbers went up. That's not the case in my diocese, Richard, or Jesse. 
Well, you know what, Terry? Tell me, bro. That's not going to be the case in the Phoenix Diocese either. I can tell you uh, the, the masses at the Cathedral Bishop of Olmsted, yeah. they're, they're pretty full. Yeah. But uh, I, I hope I'm wrong. But I think when we get our new Bishop Dolan at August 1st, yeah. if he starts bringing in some of the San Diego LGBT... Oh, yeah. People are going to not come. Are you kidding? Because uh, it's, it's a TV mass that Bishop, uh, that Bishop Olmsted does. Me and my wife are watching it this Good. Sunday. Good. And we're saying, you know what? Uh, that could be the end of the TV mass because if, if if bizarre things start happening in the liturgy like rainbow flags and LGBT homilies, I can tell you this, uh, nobody's going to watch it and uh, you, you, few people are going to attend that mass. Well, Jesse, that uh, is not prophetic. It's just a fact. That's how things work in the church. That's why we want to bring back reverent masses because we want souls to get to heaven. How do they get to heaven? Through the sacraments. Through an encounter with Jesus Christ. How do you get that encounter? Through his church, through reverent liturgies, confession. We'll be back with more on the Terry and Jesse Show. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. We're waiting for Charles A. Colomb. He's on his way on the freeway here in L.A. to come visit with us. It's going to be a great interview. But, Jesse, I wanted to bring something up to you that uh, newsworthy. Uh, Pope John Paul I's beatification is set for September 4th. And um, this is the pope that was known to be the smiling pope. And... Um, it had the shortest papacy in modern history, reigning over the Holy See for 33 days. And uh, he was the first pope to choose a double name, saying so because he honored uh, two of his predecessors, John the Twenty-Third and Paul the VI. Uh, he also um, was the last long line of Italian popes born uh, since 1523. And his successors, are you ready? John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis have all praised the man knowing as the smiling pope. Yes, can I just be really frank here with our listeners? This is like we're at yeah. Denny's. Bro, we got Fulton J. Sheen waiting, ready to be beatified, and they're going to beatify Pope John Paul I? I just see that as a uh, craziness of the church right now. I really do, because a smiling pope, okay, I smile too, but beatification? Then you've got someone like Fulton Sheen who's giving us the antidote to get our church back on track, and they're stalling it. I think uh, maybe Charles is here. Let me check. Well, we'll see in a minute. I, I hear some noise in the outside the studio. Jess, my thought and your thought on that. I am I off on something? I just find it amusing. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why this is happening. Hit me because you did. You tell and, me and let's that. See what, let's see if right off Charles the air. Can, yeah. yeah, but in between the Council of Trent and and uh, the start of Vatican II in 1962, yeah, there's been two popes that have been canonized. Two mm-hmm. in 350 years. Wow, two popes have been canonized. Now notice. After 1960, well, after 1962, you have John Paul the, the John the Twenty Third, who's right. Saint John the Twenty Third. You have Pope Paul the Sixth, who's Saint Paul the Sixth. Uh, you're gonna have you're gonna have John Paul the First is gonna be Saint John Paul the First, real in, in in short time. You got Saint John Paul the Second, I think very much deserved, and then you have Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. So notice, before Pope Francis, the five prior popes uh, since since John the Twenty Third. Four of them have been made canonized saints. Mm-hmm. Before that, 
from the Council of Trent to 1962, only two popes were made saints. Now, here's what's interesting, Terry. Why are they, here's why I think this is happening. Anybody that would dare say anything about maybe a document, some of the verbiage and in, in, in some of the documents of Vatican II, they're going to tell you, you can't say anything. Everybody after Vatican II, they're all saints. So shut your mouth, withhold your tongue. <laughs> you can't say anything because everybody is a saint. So what they're doing, they're trying to make it so that nobody can ever say anything negative about the fruits of Vatican II. Or even about some of the ambiguous writing in, in like religious liberty, ecumenism. You can't say anything negative because they're going to say, hey, the, out of the last six popes, four are saints. So shut your mouth, Romero. All right, Romero. Well, let me get Charles Cologne, who's, who wrote a book on the history of the papacy. Ask him that question. That's what he's here right now with us here in studio. Charles, welcome to the Terry and Jesse show. Hello. Great to be here. All right, my friend. Well, you probably heard what Jess and I, I was a little concerned about Fulton Sheen's beatification, that I would love to see that happen. But I see people in the church who uh, oppose Fulton Sheen for all the wrong reasons. So give us your take on what's going on with the beatification of John Paul I. Well, firstly, I, I, I agree that uh, it's very peculiar that you've had a rush of papal canonizations, and I agree with you for the reason, with the reason for it. Mm -hmm. um, I think possibly those pushing for the canonization don't necessarily know what they're talking about, not in the sense of their sanctity, uh, but rather look at St. John the 23rd. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's. He pushed uh, devotion to the precious blood. Yep. Have we heard about that? Oh, gee, I guess not. What about Veterum Sapientia? Well, he requires Latin That's to be right. taught in every seminary. Good point. Crickets, crickets, crickets. <laughs> I'll invoke the saints, all right, but you're not going to like it when I do it. <laughs> St. John the Twenty-Third declared when he opened the council, St. Paul the Sixth declared when he closed it, that infallibility was not invoked by it. Wow. That's well, a fact. I'll quote you a saints, all right. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> but I promise you, you won't like it when I'm done. Charles, let me just say, let me. I, I love having you on our show because your 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 zeal for the faith, your love for Jesus Christ is number one. Now, the way you part your hair, it's a little different than mine, but it's okay. It's okay. But I love your sense of humor. But I I want to just say that uh, I'm hoping that I'm going to have more time after we have lunch. That's uh, and I'll let you know what I mean by that. But I want to I want to focus right now on another topic. Because this is one about the popes we can talk later. I asked you about your father, okay? Yep. And you told me that there doesn't come a time in your day that you don't quote your father. And I wanted to share that with our listeners, uh, the how your father influenced you in your own life. And then set the stage for our listeners, for those who don't know your background. I know you were born in 1960 and in New York, but your parents came to Hollywood because of acting careers, your mom, and uh, you grew up here in Southern California, and I won't hold that against you, so did I. Worst <laughs> things have happened to better people. <laughs> so tell us your background, and, and then tell us how your father influenced you in, in regards to your Catholic faith. Like, you mentioned to me how he would take you places. I, I just think this is a good example of how a father can form a young man. Uh, I... I have to agree. <laughs> uh, well, my dad was a French-Canadian from New Bedford, Massachusetts. 
uh, he came from a family with um, acting and radio and that kind of thing, uh, which was kind of rare for French Canadians from New Bedford, Massachusetts. But they were not a, a, an ordinary kind of family. Um, he went away to World War II. He was a tail gunner in uh, the war against the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Twelve successful missions when their usual uh, lifespan in combat was measured in seconds. Hmm. So he came out of that experience, and amongst other things, he said, uh, other men say they believe in God. I know. That was <laughs> his, one of his tests. I love it. Well, mm. because he said he had absolutely no reason, no reason to be alive. And so I, I asked him, I said, well, you know, why then did you live and others die? And he said, that's a, that's a question you have to ask him. Yeah, not me. <laughs> I, I, I can't answer it. Sure. But he, um, so he was, a, he was an interesting fellow on the GI Bill. He went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. That was his, the extent of his higher education. Uh, but he was a real polymath and he had a, an endless interest in things, in history, religion, politics. I can honestly say that every one of my major intellectual interests I got from him. Beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. He had a, a huge library, uh, and he'd read everything in it. <laughs> um, when we got out to, to California, it became kind of obvious that uh, by the time they could break into the movies, we'd starve. So <laughs> he um, uh, fell back on a background he had in engineering. Mm-hmm. And he went to work for a company that uh, uh, sub-contracted sub, uh, to the Walt Disney Corporation mm-hmm. to do the water systems for Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, my goodness. Pirates of the mm. Caribbean was originally going to be a walkthrough. I didn't know that. It's true. But then uh, Uncle Walt had a, uh, a tremendous epiphany yes. with It's a Small World. And then he said, you know, and on top of it is the whole maritime theme. Yeah. So let's... Let's turn this into a water thing. Well, that had nothing to do with the animatronics at all, except when designing the water systems, he had to think about what it would look like. Mm-hmm. And that that's a big part of his handiwork. So when uh, whenever I uh, ride Pirates of the Caribbean, the one in Disneyland, not the other, yeah. um, I'm, I'm always uh, happy to be riding on my dad's legacy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, now, did your father also, if you had questions on the faith about certain things, wouldn't he take you to not just talk about it? He'd say, come on, son, let's go. Tell us about that. Well, the thing about my father Tell me. was that he never expected us to believe something because he said so. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so he knew a lot, but if he didn't know the answer to a given question, he'd look it up. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, and similarly, all of our school books he would go through, especially our religion books, and look for error. Wow. And he would point them out to us. Yes. See, I, I suppose I should say something right out straight, and this is important for any parents or would-be parents or, or survivors of parenting yeah. <laughs> uh, out there. The thing with my parents, and my father in particular, is that they always made it clear that my brother and I were the most important things in the world to him. That was the first thing. That's very, very important that your kids know that. Uh, It doesn't mean they'll always be happy with you or vice versa. But it gives them kind of a rock to stand on that even after they die, won't go away. Yep. Um, Which is why he took the time 
when my brother and I were interested in, uh, in anything in particular, he'd look into it. And if he liked it, if he thought it was appropriate, he'd get us as much information as he could on, on it. Going to the library, learning how to use the library was a rite of passage. Ah. I remember mm. the end of my days uh, going with Dad to the old Hollywood library mm-hmm. and getting my card. Oh, man, you're a big guy then. Yeah, that was yeah. short. But he, uh, he took me all through it, explained the Dewey Decimal System. And, uh, you know, well, well, it was the same with religion. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. What, what about religion? How did he help you, um, you know, figure these things out? See, this, but I, I mentioned these other things simply because it's important to bear in mind that for my dad, mm-hmm. religion was a seamless part of everyday life. It was everything. It was connected to everything. Yeah. Uh, there was no separation of church and state in our house, I can tell you. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it was a piece of a piece of a piece of a piece. Sure. Uh, going to Mass was like going to dinner. You know, it's just what you do because you have to do it. It's, and I say have to do it. You have to do it and you enjoy doing it. Yes. You know. And Charles, hold on. we got a commercial coming up. When we come back, we're going to talk more about your father and his influence with your Catholic faith and much more here on the Terry and Jesse Show. Stay with us, family. You won't want to miss this, especially moms and dads. I love that statement. You are the most important person in my life. That needs to be communicated. We'll be back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Jess and I are just sitting here going, Charles, we love your comments about your dad. We would love to meet him someday in heaven, I hope. But can you share a little bit more? You were in the middle before the break about how your father influenced you on your religious formation. Well, as I say, for starters, uh, you see, he was very, very much a believer that the parents are the primary educators of the children. <laughs> Good for him. I, well, I know it sounds it sounds obvious, except people don't get it. <laughs> and one of the big problems in my era was that uh, people figured you went to a Catholic school, the, the nuns, they'd take care of it. Well, they took care of it all right, which is why most of us who went to Catholic schools aren't Catholic. That's a fact. Mm. They took care of it. Yep. You know, very nicely, if making non-Catholics is what you want to do. So, as I say, my father would review all of our school books, and especially the religion books, because, of course, this was the immediate era after the council, uh, and stuff, quite frankly, was going utterly mad. Yep. Uh, And it so happened... My first brush with this stuff was at, I don't want to be, you know, mention the names, but it was Blessed Sacrament Church in Hollywood, California. I love this. I know it's, well. I don't, want to, I, I don't want to be specific. That's okay. But it was the Immaculate Heart Nuns. Sure. Um, yeah, and the, the, the famous explosion in uh, sapphic rage. Yes. Uh, that, we were part of it. Yeah. My brother and I. And, um, you know, it was a very difficult time. But my father didn't lose his bearings, didn't lose the faith. One of the things in dealing with church matters, uh-huh. and this this came from, frankly, from his background being French Canadian from New England. The community had had kind of a problem with the Irish hierarchy back in the twenties. The uh, 
the famous, uh, well, not famous to you, but to us, the Sontanelle affair. Uh, it came very close to a schism like the Polish National Catholics. Wow. But fortunately, through the intervention of a uh, schismatic girl, not schismatic, gosh, my mind's going, stigmatic. That's a different word. <laughs> uh, little Rose Ferrand. Schismatic and stigmatic are two different things, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thank you. If, if someone's in schism, that's one thing. If they've got the stigmata, that's a different thing. They're not the same. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. Now, mind you, you may feel like it. If, you've got, if, you've, if you're in the system, you might feel like you've got that. Anyway, let's yeah. move along. Okay. So the thing is, this little Rose Ferrand kind of intervened, and uh, everybody respected her, so she was able to basically broker a deal. So that it didn't happen. But what did happen was that those who had been Sotinellists never really had the kind of adulation of a hierarchy that people associate with the pre-Vatican II church. Uh, and so my dad was always very clear on the distinction between the office and the man. Good distinction. Oh, yeah. It's all Critical. important. Critical. All important. Yep. Because if you don't make that distinction, two things happen. The uh, errors or faults or flaws or whatever the man mm -hmm. can destroy the appearance of the office to you. Well said. And contrary-wise, mm -hmm. the... the Mere fact that the fellow occupies the office may lead you to think that he's as perfect as the office is. Well, no. I do know our medieval Catholic ancestors, and I'll deal specifically with the idea of monarchy here, the king, they had a very clear distinction here. They called the body political of the king, which is the king who never dies. You know, the king is dead, long live the king. Yeah. And then there's the body natural, the particular king of the day. And... That, although Dad would not use those words, the idea of the body political and the body natural for any office, and especially for the church, was something that was very much a part of his thinking. So we knew some of the worst priests imaginable in every way you can guess, but it didn't affect his, uh, his love for the priesthood. Awesome. In fact, he used to say, if you could go to confession to a priest who, for other reasons, you despise. Yeah. That's an act of humility. Hmm. I mean, you're, oh, had, your father had it, man. Wow. Well, wow. He did. Because, I, you know, it, it, there's the priest, the man, and the priest, the priest. And another, I remember one time he and I were walking behind Blessed Sacrament, mm -hmm. and the, the Jesuits there was filled with scotch bottles and all that. And Dad says, now here you go, son. Here's an important point to make. I said, what's that, Dad? <laughs> Is this a scandal or not? And I said, well, I don't know. Is it? And he said, it depends on the sermon you hear tomorrow. <laughs> he said, mm. the sermon is good and orthodox and clear. Ah, well, you know, Father likes a little tipple. On the other hand, if it's heretical or stupid, worthless drunk. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Oh, and how old were you when that happened? What's up? How old were you when your father gave you that? Were you just a youngster? Eight or nine. Yeah, see that? Incredible. Well, Incredible. see, he had to because things were happening. Yeah. I mean, it was this, it was like with the nuns, you know, with the IHMs, and they dropped their habits. Yeah. Um, again, this is typical. In every one of our classes, uh, first grade through eighth grade, um, my brother being in eighth and I being in second. Yeah. Uh, he was getting ready to graduate. Yes. And in each class was sort of a plebiscite. The sister would stand there in her lay clothes, 
and call your name, and you had to stand up and say yes or no. Mm -hmm. Yes if you agreed, no if you didn't. Now, we knew we were being used, and we knew what they wanted. Of course. So in my case, every class, uh, sorry, every every person when they would stand up and say yes, yes, yes. It was alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. Then she got to Coulomb, and I stood up and said no. Well, no one else had been asked to explain. So she says, well, Mr. Coulomb, won't you come up to the front of the class and explain to us all why you disagree? And I'm walking. I kept a, a yeah. poker face, but I'm thinking, yeah. you know, I know she thinks she's doing well. We'll see. So I get up there to the front of the class, and I yeah. turn around. And I said, well, sister, a soldier has his uniform, a priest has his cassock, and a nun has her habit. And if she doesn't want to wear it, she shouldn't be a nun. Oh, you really said, how old were you when you said that? Eight. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, well, I, believe me, my parents, they had very sharp tugs, with the, which I grew up listening to when they had to deal with people. So. Yeah. so at any rate, I said this, but I hadn't shown any disrespect or anything. So all she could do was say, sit down. <laughs> and I did. Yeah. But then everybody said no after me. Wow. Because, you know, I hadn't been eaten alive. So, yeah. the, so the second grade was a wash. Yeah. In my brother's class, eighth grade, same, same, but he was stuck with the same deal, sent up to the front. Yeah. He said, well, sister, I just don't understand. If you don't have to obey the cardinal, why do we have to obey you? That's a great logic. Yes. And again, sit down. Everybody said, everybody said no after that. Mm -hmm. So the second grade and the eighth grade were total washes. Well, my dad got two very angry ladies calling him that evening. Imagine. Oh, they were very upset. Now, he and I hadn't discussed it at that oh. up to that point because he didn't think I'd be stuck with something as stupid. Yeah. So she tells him what happened. Yeah. And then says, what's wrong with your son, Mr. Coulomb? Why doesn't he want to be progressive? You know, of a second grader, huh? Unbelievable. Jeez. That's what we had to experience back in the 60s and 70s. Go ahead. And my father's response was, well, I don't know, sister. I, I guess he'd rather be right. <laughs> it didn't go over well, I imagine. Uh, so that that was kind of a loss. And what she didn't know, of course, was that he was doing everything he could to keep from laughing. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Sister John Patrick, or Sister Donna, as she became, calls uh, my dad about Andre. Sure. Tells him the story. And... Dad says, well, I don't know, sister. He's asked a very good question, and I don't have an answer for him. You better, because I don't. <laughs> so the thing about my brother is that he's always had a wonderful skill, if, if wonderful is what I can call it. He can look at you. He won't make faces at you. Just look, and you want to smack him. You just want to <laughs> pop him. Yeah. Well, he started doing that after this event to her mm -hmm. all the time. Sure. She took about a week and a half of it. And she calls my dad. And says, Mr. Coulomb, I want to talk to you about Andre. And Dad said, well, what's going on? Is he, is he cutting up in class? No. Was he being disrespectful? No. Well, what's going on, sister? And he could hear her. He didn't know up to this point what the story was. But she was like, well, he, 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 he looks at me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Dad knew exactly what the story was when she said that. Sure. And he says, but he says, well, uh, sister, um, I, I don't understand. Uh, I mean, what with you being the teacher, he's he is supposed to look at you, I, I think. If you were looking out the window, I could see you're getting annoyed, but he looks at you. Isn't that what he's supposed to No, 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 it's not that. It's not that at all, Mr. Colombo. You don't understand. 
I know that when he's staring at me, he's looking at me with complete and utter contempt. <laughs> and my father said, oh, I can't believe that for a second, sister. My son Andre has nothing but the greatest respect for the habit, and he... <laughs> oh, that's right. You don't wear them anymore. <laughs> yeah, he got the message. She got well, the message. I'll tell you what, sister. Here's the problem. Unless he shows you some outward sign of disrespect, I can't discipline him. And you, of all people, wouldn't want me to punish him for what he's thinking, I'm sure. So if I were you and I wanted his respect, I would try to earn it. Put the habit back on. But he told us from that point on, he called the two of us together and said, boys, they're going to make your life hell from now on. <laughs> now, there's only two things to be done. We can either pull you out and put you in the public school, Selma Avenue, across the street. And then you'll have a different set of issues, but you won't have those. They didn't say issues. They said problems. Nobody had issues in those days. They had problems. They had challenges. We didn't talk about issues. Anyway, so he says, I could do that. But if I do, of course, Andre, you won't be graduating with your friends. In fact, you won't be graduating at all because that's not how that system works. You'd have another year there of ninth grade. Or you could stay. But if you stay... You'll be with your friends, but the dear sisters will make your lives miserable, and there's only so much I can do to help you. So there it is. And we looked at each other and said, we'll stay. Yep. And we did. We just have a couple minutes left, Charles. Give us a couple one-liners that your dad would give you regarding life experiences. I, I know you gave a couple to me last week. Well, of course, one of, one of my favorites. Go ahead. One of your favorites. We can get it in. One of my favorites was... You know, I can't make you do anything you don't want to. All I can do is make you wish to God you had. Ah, very good. Well, we've been interviewing Charles Cologne about his father's life and how he affected the kids in a very positive way. And I want to remind you, I like the most important thing I heard was making parents let your kids know that they're the most important thing in their in your life so that they will see that in action. Thanks again for joining us here. I, I make one more point if I can. My father always said, the Thomas is the thinking man for this. Got it. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Charles. And Jess, what state should we be living in, brother? We've got 30 seconds. Live in a state of sanctifying grace. Don't live in a state of mortal sin. And remember, Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ commands. Do not be afraid. Amen. And don't forget Our Lady said souls are going to hell because no one is there to pray and make sacrifices. Please pray and make sacrifices for the salvation of souls. May God richly bless you and your family.